Hello, I'm Dori Robinson, and this is Tree Speech, a podcast where we practice hearing the forest through the trees. This week's episode was written and recorded in Massachusetts on the native lands of the Wabanaki Confederacy, Penacook, Massachusett, and Pawtucket people, in New York on the land of the Lenape tribes, as well as on the lands of the Arduina forest. Tree Speech is co-written and produced by Jonathan Zoutner and Delight Theatre Guild. We at Tree Speech strive to bring you insightful stories and information about trees and those who engage with them. As we keep growing, we would appreciate your support. We now have a Patreon, and every dollar helps us continue to produce this podcast. Find the link in our show notes or at treespeech.com. You can contribute anything from $3 and up a month, and we'll be giving gifts of gratitude, including an invitation to Treehouse, our new virtual community for patrons of all levels. Please also consider passing the word to tree-loving folks and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Every kind word helps. In this episode, we are excited to speak with druid, theorist, and writer Reed Wildermuth. Originally from Appalachia and now living in the Ardennes, Reed is the director of publishing for Ritona, Gods and Radicals Press, and the author of six books, most recently, Being Pagan, A Guide to Reenchanting Your Life. Reed will be talking both about paganism and his practice as a druid. According to Pagan Federation International, paganism is the ancestral religion of the whole of humanity. It is often seen as a large umbrella term with many types of religions under it, of which Druidism is one. In general, pagans celebrate nature and spirituality. There is a value of an eco-friendly lifestyle and equality of the sexes. Festivals and rituals are often connected to nature cycles of the moon, solstices, seasons, and so forth. The word pagan or paganus in Latin means rural, villager, related to the countryside, and later civilian. Around the 4th century CE, when Christianity was adopted by the Roman Empire, the authorities needed a word to denote and ostracize those who continued to practice the old polytheistic religions. Thus, pagan was used interchangeably with words such as heathen, meaning dwelling on the heath, and gentile, which originally meant of a clan or tribe, but later evolved to mean non-Jewish. Eventually, the word pagan stuck as the synonym for non-Christian, a worshiper of false gods who is not aligned with an Abrahamic faith. But why use the word pagan? Historians theorize that with the rise of Christianity, non-Christians chose to live closer to nature, away from the cities, which were dominated by a Christian population. Another theory is that it was because most pagan religions are closely tied to nature. Whatever the factual origins, what is most significant is that this title was not chosen by the community, but rather put upon them. It was meant to be derogatory and even dangerous, 
For centuries, being called a pagan could bring prosecution or even death. It was Constantius II in 337 who, to further the spread of Christianity, closed the pagan temples and issued extreme anti-pagan laws, including the death penalty for anyone performing a pagan sacrifice. Even so, many senators were quite passive on the matter, and so paganism continued until Theodosius I was ordered to actively persecute pagans. Pagan priests were murdered and holy sites desecrated. Theodosius I even banned the Olympics, which was originally a pagan ritual. Clearly, this suppression was not as successful as he hoped, since the games continue to this day. The philosophical roots for what we consider paganism are mainly inspired by animism, which is the perception that everything has a soul. Rocks, flowers, trees, sky, as well as people. There are also three main beliefs that seem to be widely prevalent, which are recognizing that human beings are part of and intimately interwoven with nature. The second, individuals are responsible for the discovery and development of their true nature in harmony with the greater world and community. And lastly, recognition of the divine, which transcends gender, acknowledging all the aspects of a deity. Druidry is difficult to define and specific to each person who practices. It means a way of life to some and more of a religion to others. Druids seek above all the cultivation of wisdom, creativity, and love. The love of trees is fundamental in Druidry, as is tree lore. Ancient Druids shied away from writing down their beliefs, lest they fall into the wrong hands. Most of the written information we have regarding ancient Druidry comes from a surprising source, real-life Roman statesman and fictional Shakespeare character Julius Caesar. Caesar noted that there were two groups of men in Gaul that were held in honor, the Druids and the noblemen. The Druids took charge of public and private sacrifices, judged all public and private quarrels, and decreed penalties. Caesar further noted that the Druids abstained from warfare and paid no tribute, which made them an attractive community to join. Reed shares his own thoughts about being a practicing Druid during our interview. We were fortunate to speak with him over Zoom, seeing the oak trees and land throughout the window behind him. He writes about connection, and it's clear to see the way connecting to the land, himself, and others allows him to be the teacher and writer he is. And now, our interview with Reed Wildermuth. So we'll just jump right in. What is a druid? Uh, the word druid or originates, interestingly enough, from the the same word that uh, means oak in very old uh, Gaelic versions of, of Celtic languages. The word was duar. It's also one of the, the roots of the word door as well. To, to start with the story of druids, you have to start with the story of oaks. Oaks were very often the sacred center of uh, many communities here, the indigenous people within Europe. The oaks are still sacred here. There's still remnants of that. But the, the Druids were those who communed with the oak or were seen as part of a, 
you know, the human mediator, as it were, between humans, uh, the village, the society, the community, and the the, the rest of the, the earth. The forest's mediator with the, the humans was the oak, and the human's mediator with the forest was the druid. How would you describe your practice? My position as druid or my identification as druid, as it were, is more, for me, a role. A role that I take on uh, in relation to, to the land around me. Whereas, okay, I live here. I'm going to be as responsible as I can to the land and for the land and do what I can here and, and, and enter into, I, I guess you would say, a reciprocal relationship. It's very reciprocal, although I'm getting the better end of the deal from the land around me. I don't claim to be part of any you know, ancient order. The, the Druids that existed uh, within the Celtic lands specifically, uh, also in the Germanic lands, you know, they had specific roles for, in relationship to the land, but also in relationship to the people. It, it was both a spiritual and a political role, but I don't take on a political role with anyone here. I just spend a lot of time in the trees, not climbing the trees. I'm not very good at climbing, I should admit. Whenever, whenever I can, whenever I want to, whenever I feel I need to, um, particularly when I feel I need to, there are moments where you know, if I'm working too much or, you know, something emotionally distressing happens, uh, you know, you could ask my husband, the first thing he knows will happen is like, oh, okay, yeah, he's out in the forest again. I just spend a lot of time there listening. Well, actually, I spend a lot of time talking. There are things you can only say inside of a forest. Uh, there are things, there are thoughts you can only have inside of a forest. And then I try to bring those thoughts back into the rest of my life uh, through my writing and, and through the rest of my work as well. You recently released the book, Being Pagan, A Guide to Reenchant Your Life. Can you describe the relationship between being a Druid and a practicing pagan? Pagan was the Roman slur against the rural people who lived outside of the cities, whose customs, whose beliefs, whose way of relating to the world did not fit in with urban civilization, the, the Roman civitas, as it were. Uh, that word uh, predated Christianity. So the people who lived there were, you know, backwoods, um, backwards hicks, as it were, uh, rednecks, uh, you know, all of the, the modern smears or dismissals of such people that, that we use in English and, and in many other languages. So, so by pagan, I mean that. I mean that specific relationship to the land, the, the land that's, uh, or that specific relationship that cities particularly, and later on, Christianity kept a lot of that uh, anti-rural sentiment. But we see this most within capitalist modernity, where everybody who's not drinking the right coffee and thinking the right thoughts in the city are, are somehow a, a primitive throwback. I wouldn't say that I'm a pagan druid. I would say I am a pagan and also a druid. And those are two different, uh, two different ways of looking at that same kind of relationship that I think is still always available to people. You know, it, it still exists in many indigenous societies and in many co colonized societies, but it's also something that is available to anyone but it, it exists in opposition to the, you know, hyper-industrialization, the hyper-commercialization and 
the general mindsets of capitalism and the urban. Can you tell us your views on how anyone can incorporate pagan practice into their life? For instance, could a person be pagan and live in a city? Uh, Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's helpful to look at the city as a mindset as opposed to a specific place. How I started, I think, was there there were two specific things. Uh, the, the, The place I tell everyone to start, first of all, is to start looking at the moon. Whenever you can, you always look at the moon because this is something that pre-exists clocks, pre-exists the factory, uh, pre-exists the smartphone. It's this natural clock, as it were. And, you know, it's before clocks, so it's not fair to call it a natural clock. But it's something that has been there with humans since there have been humans. Uh, It's been there before humans, and it'll probably be there after humans. So... Starting there kind of disrupts the urban mindset of time being something that machines tell you, and instead time being something that humans experience in many different ways and in relationship to the rest of the world around them. And you can, in most cities, you can still see the moon, even on the, on the brightest, or even in the brightest city, you know, there's still a chance to kind of see it. And in fact, I've had some really amazing experiences being in a city, uh, walking around and then suddenly catching a glimpse of the moon, uh, rounding a corner, uh, running a street corner and just finding myself being able to put the city in context, all of the, the noise, all of the light. And then you remember, wait, but there's something older outside of this. There's another thing that I highly suggest, especially related to, uh, to trees. Well, actually, in every American city I've ever been, you'll always find these places where a tree root is starting to break the, the sidewalk, the pavement. Um, city planners and, and urban engineers do everything they can possibly do to, to contain those trees, to, to keep those trees from breaking anything. But but you'll still see these places where the sidewalk is kind of getting pushed up or if it's bricks or cobblestone, it's the same thing. The, the tree itself is saying, no, I exist beyond the city. And that experience of seeing a tree root just break through reminds you that there's something under and older than everything around you. And you know, it's something anyone can experience. You, you know, Maybe you'll trip on the sidewalk and wonder what, what happened. And then you look and realize, oh, it's a tree, meaning there would be, there was, and there will be again a forest here. You have a passage in Being Pagan, which states, I hope this book finds you well, and I hope it helps you find what you have always known, but forgot to remember. What do you think we have forgotten to remember? Um, that, That we are bodies connected to something much bigger than ourselves that we always experience. We always, we always feel this, but we forget to feel this. We forget to look at it. The, the feeling of all that we have when we experience something in nature, as it were. And, and, and of course, nature is not really the right way to put this either because we are also part of nature, but that experience of, of wonder or of peace or of serenity is, is we see these as rare moments and see these as moments that we have to go seek 
except that these are moments that are always occurring to us, but, but we fail to, to give attention to them. We, we fail to, to bring them to our, our consciousness. They, they remain in our unconscious all the time. We, we feel the light of the sun on our skin. And that is a, a warm, almost erotic sensation to have the, the light caress your skin and your body is doing something with that sunlight in relationship to it. Uh, converting it to, to vitamin D as it were, you know, we're in relationship to the sun all of the time, but we do not give attention to that. But then there's this big ball of light that is constantly always touching us. And then there's this other ball of light that is there all of the time, even when it does not appear to be there. And it's something that has always been connected to humans, but we've forgotten our connection to it. And so that's what I mean. We, it's, it's already there. These sensations, these understandings, these, uh, these connections have always been there, but we don't focus on them. We don't bring attention to them. Re-enchanting your life, as it were, is, is really just about remembering those connections again. Humans have cats, house cats. And I recently learned I had never drawn this connection, but the Latin name for cat, for the house cat, the domestic cat, is Felix Silvestris, uh, meaning, you know, the, the, the forest cat, because they lived in forests. Um, and they still do, wild if they have a chance to, to become non-domesticated, as it were. We literally have this forest being in our homes all of the time. This forest creature, this, this, this spirit, as it were, of the, the forest is, is always, well, not, not everyone has a cat, of course, but it, it's, it's, it came out of the forest just like we came out of the forests. And it came out later to, to teach us things. And that's what I mean by the re-enchantment, uh, that re remembering, oh, wait, I'm I'm every morning I'm feeding this cat who is meowing at me. And, and yes, I enjoy this cat, but it's also <laughs> a spirit of the forest, just like we were spirits of the forest as well. The spirit of the forest that has come to teach us so much. Why is re-enchanting our lives important? Of course, we know climate change is occurring. We, we know that we have been really destructive to the world around us individually, collectively, and specifically because of the capitalist system. Everything has gone a bit off, or actually everything is balancing itself in a new way that is not a way that has ever occurred for us before. A lot of that comes from, or a lot of the damage and destruction that we've, we've, we've wrought on the earth is specifically because we forgot to see it as sacred. Recently, the the, the Notre Dame the Cathedral burned down, um, or part of it burned down in, in Paris. And there was a crisis because it was built with several large oak logs. And it was not clear that they were going to be able to find enough oaks of the correct size to rebuild it, which means there aren't that many oaks left. And most of those oaks are protected. They're, here in Luxembourg, there are 83 very ancient oaks that are protected. Those are the oldest and the largest. None of those could be used to rebuild this cathedral. Now, the, the reason why oaks were used in, in Notre Dame was not just because of their size, but because of their sacred nature. Oaks were sacred trees, not just to the, the pagan animist people who came before Christianity, but the Christians 
themselves continue to recognize the, the sacred nature of the tree. And that's why they're used in religious places. Uh, there are still healing oaks everywhere. In fact, there's a healing oak about a kilometer away from me where faithful Catholics go to light candles to ask the Virgin for, for healing, but they're asking the Virgin at an oak. So the, the disenchantment of the world uh, is really the, the loss of the sense of sacred, where we started treating things as objects instead of as living important beings that were living alongside with humans, were responsible for uh, you know, much of our food, much of our survival, and that humans were also responsible back to those things. So the importance of re-enchantment is specifically to bring us back to the sense of things being sacred, our human relationships with each other being sacred, as well as our human relationships to the rest of the natural world and the natural world's relationship to itself as well, all being based on, you know, enchantment, sacred, not necessarily magical, though, of course, we have the sense like, oh, wow, that's a very magical place. And what we mean is this is a sacred place. This place is different from other ones set apart, which is the, the Latin root of sacred is something that you set apart. And we've forgotten that. And that's leading us to some really severe political and economic and you know, biological crises in the world. I'd be particularly interested in speaking about the relationship between trees, forests, and the gods of the Celtic and Germanic peoples. Mm -hmm. And I know that's a huge part of your background and also a part of you as you live there, live in that, in that part of the world. So... It was, it was Beltane or May Day or the 1st of May, uh, just a few days ago. And in Britain specifically, uh, there, there's often a, there are sacred rituals involving uh, the hawthorn tree. Uh, here in Luxembourg, it's, uh, the sacred tree is the beech. So they make crowns of, of uh, beech branches. But if you go a little further east, then you'll find that some of them make pines at the same, same day, and then the other ones use birch. The ritual form is there, and the ritual form stays despite centuries of conversion to, to monotheism, where the older ideas were thought of as evil or backwards. And it still survives even through the secularization of society, where you know, believing in anything is, is seen as being backwards. Many times here, the, the Catholics continue to, to do these rites, and they've been integrated into Catholic liturgy in local places. All of that stems from the, the history of the peoples here. I, I come from the United States, and, and probably most of your listeners are from the United States. So, so we, tend to, we tend to only think of indigenous culture as being something that was subject to colonization within North America and South America or what is called North America and South America. But here in Europe, which has completely forgotten its, its ancestral traditions, you know, there were tribes who were indigenous to these lands as well. And they had their own customs and those customs continued. They mixed, creating new customs everywhere, but they were all centered on natural phenomena, uh, natural places, and particularly the forests. So there's a very large forest existed across Europe and there were peoples living in each parts of the forests and they had their own names for their sections of them. 
And in almost all cases, the names of the forests were actually also the name of a god or a goddess. So here in the Ardennes, the old name for the forest, the Silva Arduina, comes from the, the Romans experiencing people saying, oh yes, this is Arduina, who is both a goddess for them, but also the forest. And they didn't really make a distinction between the forest and the goddess. Uh, the goddess had a forest, but the goddess was the forest, and the goddess lived in the forest and came out of it. This this continues throughout all of the sections of the uh, that forest that was. So the ancient animists, indigenous way of looking at nature, specifically looking at trees and the forests, was that it was uh, engodded, as it were. There was a god there or a goddess there, but there was not really the kind of modern distinction we have between the natural world and the spirit world. And you still see all of these fragments of those beliefs uh, continue. Here, around the time of Imbolc, um, it's actually later in February, there's a ritual here called the Berstbrennen. Berstbrennen is a, um, they take all of these old uh, trees, um, most of them being the old Yule logs that they were using or the Yule trees that they were using for Christmas, but before Christmas was Christmas. And they stack them up and they burn them and they burn them to, to show that spring has come that the winter is over. It's the end of, you know, the times of nothing growing. And you see this exact same ritual occur in many other places at slightly different times. And, and, and these are mostly attached to the Catholic church now. And, and there are new Catholic rituals put alongside it, but there's still these continuously existing pagan rituals or ancient animus rituals uh, that haven't gone away. They just have a new name on them. And those themselves were connected to the belief in, you know, the forest being sacred and not just sacred, but being in God. You've written many books, one of which is Your Face is a Forest, in which you mention gates quite a bit, both yeah. metaphorically and spiritually and physically. In this present day space, are there gates that you are looking to go through? The idea <laughs> the, of, of gates uh, comes again from the idea of the, the connection between the, the word oak and door in uh, old Brythonic or old uh, Gaelic Celtic languages. A tree was a door and a door, you know, to somewhere. But where was it? You know, I mean, it's of course a, a door into another, another tree. Anywhere you enter a forest is a gate to that forest. And anywhere and, and at any time that you have an experience with something outside of yourself, the, the natural world, as it were, or nature or the wild or whatever you want to call it, you enter a gate. Those, those gates change you, but they don't change you in a, you know, it, it's not a, a ecstatic religious experience. It's not a conversion experience. It's more that you learn something. So I, I teach a course on my book and one of the one of the people in the course said something really brilliant, um, and it's something that she tells people who uh, she, is, uh, she is instructing. That she tells people that you will learn truths in the forest, and those truths are true even if they are very uncomfortable. So what's true in the forest is true everywhere, but those truths are not always comfortable. They're not always convenient. They're not always easy to understand. And that's what I mean by the gates, but they're truths that... It, exist outside of our human framework or 
specifically our urban modern framework of, you know, what is important money, job, you know, et cetera. You know, it's nice to have money. It's nice to have a job because you need money. It's nice to have all of these things, but these things are not part of that much larger truth. The larger truth in the forest sometimes is that forests don't care about humans. Been in very, very, very ancient forests, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, just uh, uh, on the Olympic Peninsula, you walk through those trees and there's a feeling that you do not matter um, because these trees are so old. They've seen thousands and thousands of years of humans coming through. And it's like, well, another human, the same way that we might think of another ant walking by. (laughs) So sometimes those truths are very inconvenient, very difficult, but they're true. And that's what I mean by the gates. And you can find these everywhere. Uh, they'll be different for each person depending on what what they need to learn, what they're ready to learn. Um, but it's yeah, it's something available to everyone. Are there any that are speaking to you right now? Hmm. Uh, yeah. So I've been recently attempting to trace some more of the history of the area around here. Um, I I never expected to end up where I am. I. You know, I, I was born in the United States and I never even thought of Luxembourg. And the next thing I know, after kind of a long winding journey, I find myself living, married to a man who has always lived here and his parents and grandparents lived here as well, uh, in a village that's just next to an old Celtic settlement and old Treveri, uh, the, the Celtic peoples uh, who were here ritual sites that were also used by the Frankish peoples when they came through. Um, Just five kilometers away from me, a very short bike ride is an old ritual site uh, to to the goddess Freya. Before that, it was Arduina. And just on the other side of the hills behind me, um, there is an old shrine that was raised up on a site that originally Attila the Hun kept on. And I keep wondering, how did I get here? You know, like to, to who, who suggested I, I do this? I don't feel like this was me. So I'm, that's, I think what I'm, I'm looking for now. And, and sometimes I stumble into these gates quite accidentally, uh, having a random conversation with someone and suddenly realizing, Oh, Oh, that's, Oh, that's Saint there. That was, Oh, okay. That was Thor from the Franks. But before, for that. And it just these, these complicated, I don't know how I got here, but okay, here's where I am. I'm just going to keep tripping as much as I possibly can into these gates. I'm excited to learn more about what you're learning as you trip into these gates. Speaking of which, you have so much to share. You've got books, you've got courses. Where can we find more information about you and writings online? Yeah, for my for my uh, my pagan writings, more uh, more specifically, I, I would suggest uh, you know looking at the publisher that I direct, which is Gods and Radicals Press. It's it's now also called Ritona, which is the name of a uh, one of the Treveri goddesses who was here. I've published several books through them, but I've also published many other people who have been writing about very similar topics. So. If these things interest you, I, I highly recommend uh, looking there. So you might find something that that helps expand your knowledge on that. You know, I, I also have uh, my own blog. It's a substack uh, called From the Forest of Arduino. Wonderful. On Tree Speech, 
We have been talking for quite a while about the role of stewardship. We've been talking about being good stewards for the land. And even last season, we talked a little bit about being good stewards for history. And I just want to say, to me, you resonate as a steward of connections. You're doing such wonderful work to help us learn about how we are not other from nature, how we are all connected. And you're doing such beautiful work of helping us connect to our history rather than thinking of it as so far past as something that is really deep within us that informs us. So just thank you for the work that you do and for being such a wonderful steward of connections. That's a really deep compliment. I, I, that's, that's really profound. Thank you so much. And, you know, as I mentioned before this started, like, it is amazing that you're doing a podcast like this on trees. This is, yes, it's brilliant. I love it. Thank you, Reed. Thank you. I'll be thinking about Reed's potent insights for a long time to come. Specifically, when he said that there are things you can only say inside of a forest, there are thoughts you can only have inside of a forest. Perhaps it's easier to share thoughts in a forest because trees can be very old, have lived there a long time, and will not be shocked by one's thoughts. What do you want or need to say that might only be shared in a forest? In being pagan, Reed explains that pagan is not something you can be or become a part of, but rather something you are actively being. A practice requires active engagement and attention. Indeed, so much of re-enchantment comes from purposefully placing our attention towards something or someone. It's profound yet simple. How within our busy schedules, deadlines, to-do lists, can we actively cultivate space for enchantment as though this practice is both sacred and accessible? It can feel daunting to try to rewrite the ways we encounter the world or to suddenly aim our attention towards new things. So let's start small together. Reed mentioned that anyone anywhere can start the process of re-enchantment by simply looking at the moon actively placing our attention there, the moon's color, size, whether the moon is waxing or waning, when the moon seems to rise and set. This is a small but powerful action to re-engage with our natural world, as Reed reminds us, what we have always known, but forgot to remember. Thank you for joining Tree Speech today.